Amen, amen. Please sit down quickly. We've got a lot to cover this morning. We're going to go through Psalm 8. So if you have a copy of the scriptures, you can turn or tap your way to the 8th Psalm. If you have a paper Bible, you just let it fall in half. You're probably in the Psalms. Then you just follow the numbers down to 8. If you can't do that, ask your neighbor politely. I'm sure they'll help you without being too judgmental. Uh, Psalm chapter, Psalm 8. Um, the reason I need you to kind of move quickly this morning is that you can tell when I haven't had a lot of time to prep a sermon by how long it is. The less time I have, the longer it gets, because there's all this stuff, and I haven't had time to, like, edit appropriately. And we had camp last week, so, you know, get comfortable. You know, this one might take a second, and I want to get to the stuff that's here. Now, the Psalms, I, I don't know, again, how engaged you are with the Psalms. Throughout Christian history, the Psalms have been an integral part of the daily life of the church. There have been whole traditions of Christianity that will pray through the Psalms each month. If 150 Psalms are prayed through each month, that means you're going through about five a day. The Psalms have been the song, it's been the heartbeat, it's been this intentional sort of instruction of the imagination and through the imagination, the reason and the affections of the church for millennia. And yet, if I poke you and ask what your favorite psalm is, do you have an answer? Now, I mean that figuratively, I, I generally don't poke people physically, but if, if I ask you do, you, do you have something ready to go? Do you have a psalm that you sing to yourself, that you remember, that you are working to memorize? What are their connection to you? I, I think as you read the psalms and as you start to capture their beauty a little bit, you'll see that they tag into different parts of life, meaning that as you would just live your life, if you were familiar with the psalms, there would be several that would jump out at different moments. As we were going through camp, and I was thinking about what it is to be a student, you have, um, I think, the exact same thing that it is to be an adult, just less refined. It's just less well kind of guarded or hidden. Some of the awkwardness is there, but also some of the angst. And as adults, maybe we're too busy, or maybe we just kind of get good at hiding some of that. But unless we mature in Christ, I don't think that stuff goes away. The teenager, I think, is asking themselves constantly, who am I? How do I fit? Where do I fit? Am I an athlete? Am I a, a really intelligent person? Am I a really funny person? And if you have to say no to all of those, is there some little mix of some percentage of each that I can kind of cobble together into an identity to, to present myself with value to society? They don't say that in those words. They just sort of feel angst. But tell me, do you understand that feeling? Yeah, you've been a teenager, but do you understand that feeling like now? What is man? That's the answer that we get in Psalm chapter 8, or uh, in the 8th Psalm, for the people that are going to be fastidious about that. Psalm 8 says in verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? In this psalm, we get the answer to that question, and we get it in the form of a song. We get it in the form of imagery. We get it in a way that we can use to remind ourselves over and over and over again, because, again, this is not something that you get once, and then it just clicks in, and now you know that. Even facts are hard to just keep in your head forever, but something that your heart, something that the bent of your personality, of your, of your essence works against, 
that you're trying to correct, man, that's something that you're going to have to hit again and again and again. And Psalm 8 gives you the, the uh, ammunition for that because it is something that you would want to read again and again. It's something that continues to unfold with familiarity and yet this newness, like we talked about uh, two weeks ago, I think. But in this text, it answers that question of what man is, what humanity is, by answering the question through relationships. I think that starts to make sense. If you read the Bible, you'll see, and it it connects well with what our experience is. We're defined by our loves. We're defined by what we want, what we find to be the place of security and satisfaction in our life. We're defined by the places that we look for significance. And those are found in, generally, some type of relationship. You can say, well, no, in my life it's success. Okay, but it's success in the eyes of whom? No, 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 in my life it's all about money. Okay, money, that gives you a sort of security, and I understand how that's an idol, but it's a a security against. It's a security in the eyes of. It's all, in some ways, relational. Certainly, the way that we relate to God is the most core identity we have. If the God of the Bible is who he says he is, if he's the self-existent God overall who made all things and stewards all things totally, then your relationship to him is the number one definition of who you are. It's how you fit in his world and in his kingdom. And this verse begins that way. It starts by describing man in the fact that he is considered, that God is mindful of him, that the the son of man is, is cared for by God. I don't know of a better way to define a thing than its relationship to God. And as we read through this psalm, I want you to start seeing how God begins to impact your definition of yourself, your identity. And I I don't know that you need more bait on this hook, but if you could really know who you are, imagine the reduction that would take place in your stress. If you really had an identity outside of yourself, imagine what would happen to your pride How difficult is it for you to say you're sorry? You know, leading out at camp meant that I made a lot of mistakes. It meant I had a lot of opportunities to tell people, hey, I'm sorry for how I said that. Will you forgive me? It's hard enough to do that to somebody you respect. To do that to a student? To do that to a student from another camp? Like, I don't even know them. They're never going to see me again. I could just be that old, crotchety old man, and they would never know But before God, I still have to do this. So I said to this little girl that I was real rude to, not real rude, but we were in a group and I was reading the rules for our team game and she kept asking questions. And I was like, hang on, hang on, hang on. Hey, hey, and like made her make eye contact. Hang on. And then I kept reading. Now, that's pretty common. You know, I don't know. That's something I associate with authority. But later I was like, man, that's probably too much. I had to ask for forgiveness and it was hard. You know why it was hard? a proud man. What would it be like for you to know who you are so much so that you really had biblical humility, a right understanding of self? Let's see where it is in Psalm 8. It says in verse 1, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name above all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This psalm defines what we are as humanity in a couple of different ways. It begins by talking about what we are in the original blueprint, what we are as just the image bearers of God in this creation. It starts with Genesis 1 and 2. It begins with what we had, what we just had as God's creatures. First, it means that we had God's love. It says in verses 3 and 4, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. Now let me pause for a second and remind you. When I was saying that the Psalms can be this thing that you can set as sort of these landmines that will go off as you go through your life. This is talking about the stars. We don't get to see the whole of the stars that often. It's just too bright in the valley. But we live in a state that loves to go camping. The only redeeming value I can think of for camping is to get to a place where you can really see the stars. Everything else, totally worthless. But to see the stars like that, to see them in their billions, to be impacted by that, to remember that for most of humanity's history, you've been able to, you would be able to see the stars like that. Whenever you did, you would remember this would be something that would be set in your mind. It would be a way. We, we talked about in camp being transformed. We talked about Romans 12, 1 and 2. We talked about being transformed in, in more general ways when we talk about the gospel. But those verses talk about being transformed in your mind. These things can go off if you'll just remember them. But the author, when he's talking about these things in particular, he is looking at the magnitude of creation. He's looking at the heavens, the moon, and the stars which God has set in place. He's being overawed by the bigness And then he asks the question, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? He's saying, again, that God does know and care for us. It begins with God's love for us. At camp, we had a guy named Ross Harvey, who was our speaker. He was here last week. I hope you got to meet him and talk to him. He's absolutely wonderful. He got an incredible amount of content out to the students. And I think they would sit and endure it well because they could tell how much he loved them. He was an excellent communicator, but I think they endured it well because they could tell that he loved them. He went to camp on one of the days to play paintball with the kids. And of course, he's my size. You just imagine how big a target he was. He got lit up by those kids. (laughs) If I had done that, if I had had the care and the love of the students to like actually sacrifice myself like that, I would have used it in like six illustrations that night to show them how much I loved them and keep using it as sort of like guilt leverage to make them listen to me. He never even mentioned it. He had a little bit of blue paint in his beard the whole sermon. He never even mentioned it. That's how much he loved him. He got him really in. But he was talking to them and he said that you are the pinnacle of God's creation. That means that in God's eyes, you are more valuable than that sunset. And as he said that, a little girl next to me wrote that down. I don't know how many notes she took all week, but she wrote that down. And it was true. Can you imagine what it is to an adolescent girl to be told by the God of the universe that he finds her more beautiful than the sunset? How, how absolutely remaking that is in her concept of self. 
that's what God's saying to you, that you're the pinnacle of creation. So look around creation and see the things that are wonderful, that are awing, and still find that God loves you. I think there's something that happens too. There's, there's a way that we're going to use this as this self-definition. I want us to think about it in context of the way that our, our culture wants us to define ourselves. Because culturally, and, and you're having to paint with a really broad brush here, so forgive me. I know I'm having to kind of simplify and move things together. But culturally, there's this idea that we're not that unique. That we do just sort of fit in with the whole of matter. Is the secular mindset, the idea that there's not really a spiritual, it's just a physical, and we exist as sort of just pieces of that physical, that yeah, we're here, and yeah, we're this sort of oddity in the way that we live and move, but we're not really that important, and we will fade away into total insignificance. Wow. Kind of a bummer. But the way that they make that argument, the way that that argument comes about in some ways is this scientific sort of expansion of understanding when it comes to how big things are. There's a temptation for the human mind to just be overawed by straight numbers. How can we have significance? How can we be known? How can we be loved when the universe is so unbelievably big? How can, we be, how can we be in any way significant when our lives are so short? In some ways, they're asking the same question, but they're coming to a totally different conclusion. They're saying we're not. I think C.S. Lewis does a really good job arguing back against this when he says that we need to challenge the whole tendency to identify size and importance. Just because we're small and just because our lives are small doesn't mean that they're unimportant doesn't mean that they're insignificant. He says, and I think this is helpful, is an elephant more important than a man? They're bigger. If size matters, it should matter in every case. Is a, legs, is a man's leg more important than his brain? If you got a choice, which one are you going to lose? Your leg's bigger, but of course your brain's more valuable. I was thinking about that this week. There's a little girl, and they're just tiny little things running around. And they're in middle and high school. You know, they're almost adults or whatever. But in my eyes, they still just look minuscule. And one of them said they were, they were riding on the back of another kid. They were doing this um, piggyback ride for a game called Nine Square. And it's really helpful to be tall in Nine Square. So two little ones just stacked themselves up like the Muppets <laughs> to just play as like a double height. Nah, and it was kind of effective. They got to the middle. But I was saying, like, oh, my gosh, I'm so impressed that you carried that little girl on your shoulders for, you know, 10 minutes or whatever. And the little girl's like, I'm only 78 pounds. Wow. My leg, I can't, I don't know how to do this mathematically. My leg has to weigh more than that whole girl did. <laughs> but, of course, my leg's not more valuable than she is. Why do we get this idea that the numbers somehow matter? They don't. God still sees us as special. He still loves us, though we're so small and we're so short <laughs> in our time. And, and, and why? Well, we're his special envoy. It says in verses 5 through 8, you have made man a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, beasts of the field, birds of the heaven, fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. He's making this distinction there between us as humanity and everything else in creation. And it's a pretty good distinction. 
It's a distinction that, again, because of the way that the world kind of argues, we need to make and underline. We really are absolutely significant and distinct from everything else that's going on in creation. That matters. It is, I think, the basis of the argument from this guy G.K. Chesterton in his book called The Everlasting Man. Now, if you're a reader, if you consider yourself to be somebody who approaches the faith more from like a brain perspective than like a heart or culture or kind of community perspective, you're a thinker first, I would just highly recommend this book. This book, Everlasting Man by uh, G.K. Chesterton, written in 1925 or published in 1925, it is the book that C.S. Lewis would give people who asked him for a defense of the Christian faith. He didn't give them mere Christianity. He would give them the everlasting man. It's very, very helpful. But he makes the point that man as a creature is so unique from the rest of creation that it makes an argument. It's evidence that has to be reconciled. It doesn't fit with the sort of post-enlightenment idea that we're just all part of this randomness. Then he goes further and makes the argument that Christianity also stands totally apart from any other system of thought or philosophy, so much so that you have to reconcile it. You have to understand it. Any thinking person is going to have to fight with the facts and either come to faith or reject it. And, of course, he makes the argument. I find it totally persuasive. But one of the things he does in making this argument that man is totally separate from, totally above all of these oxen and beasts of the field and birds of the heaven and fish of the sea, is he talks about some stuff, and it's very funny when you read it. It's not just dry. I think people have this idea that apologetics is always going to be super dry, and a lot of it is. You know, they've earned that reputation. But Chesterton, it's funny. And he says, uh, he talks about art. This concept that humanity is able to build things that are totally impractical, and yet staggeringly meaningful. They, they, we can make this pure representation of abstract thought. And he begins the book by talking about the caveman. And we have all these ideas of the caveman. But what we really know about the caveman are these drawings that are from these ancient caves. What we know about the caveman is that they actually made art. It's this idea that we are so different from the rest of creation. This is what he says. What, what would it be for this caveman. Uh, I'm sorry. So at this point in the book, he's talking about a child that actually found those caves with those pictures. Originally, the, this special this place in France, when they found these caves that had these ancient, ancient, ancient drawings, they were found by a child. What would it be for that child? What would be for him the simplest lesson of that strange stone picture book? After all, it would come back to this, that he had dug very deep. It was a cave deep underground and found the place where a man had drawn the picture of a reindeer. But he would have to dig a good deal deeper before he found a place where a reindeer had drawn a picture of a man. Sounds like a funny thing. I think it's funny. Definitely okay to laugh. But maybe not gales of laughter. I get it. But I think it's funny. It's funny, you know, for, like, apologetics writing. But it's also true. So true that we almost don't say it anymore. But it's so true that we have to reason on it. We have to think about it. We are actually able to think about it and reason on it and talk about it because of another distinction between us and the rest of creation. We have the capacity for reason. He talks again about this kind of distinction between us and creation. He says, It is true that in the spring a young quadruped's fancy may lightly turn to thoughts of love, but no succession of springs has ever led it, talking about cows and dogs, to turn however lightly to thoughts of literature. 
In the same way, while it's true that a dog has dreams, while most other quadrupeds don't even seem to have that, we waited a long time for the dog to develop his dreams into an elaborate system of religious ceremonial. We waited so long that we've really ceased to expect it. And we no more look to see a dog apply his dreams to building a church than to see him examine his dreams by the rules of psychoanalysis. Again, funny. He's making fun of people. It's funny, but it's also true. There is a distinction, a real distinction between the mind of humanity and all other in creation. You have to realize this. You have to reckon this. And if there's a part of you that's like, yeah, duh, I totally believe that. Okay, but argue it. Because culturally, you're being fed something that's totally different from that. And it undermines the whole of what it is to be a human, to be a person, to have significance, to have a soul. God loves us. God has given us this sort of special place within creation. He's given us a special sort of admiration. He says about us that he loves us. Why? Well... Spend the rest of your life singing Psalm 8 to yourself a thousand, thousand times, and you still won't plumb the depth of that question. Why? Because he's good. Because God is love. He loves us. But Psalm uh, 8 goes well beyond Genesis 1 and 2. But beyond the fact of our creation and the uniqueness of us within creation, it goes on to talk about what we need. Verses 1 and verse 9 begin and end the psalm with this idea of Lord, our Lord. And if you look in your version of the scripture, it'll say, Lord, in all capital letters, our Lord, with one capital letter, O-R-D. Why? Well, they're trying to do something that's helpful. They're trying to represent every time when the Old Testament writers use the revealed name of God. Now, God has many names because he's so valuable, he's so important, he's so big that we need a lot of different descriptions of him. But the name that he gave to Moses of himself, there's this guy Moses who goes up onto a mountain and God gives him the law and he, he's, he's telling them about who he is and he's bringing the people of Israel out of Egypt and out of slavery and it's this beautiful picture of what salvation looks like throughout the whole rest of scripture. To begin all of that work, Moses is just on a mountain with God. He's just a shepherd. He's a nobody. And he's on a mountain with God. And he says, who will I say uh, has sent me? And God reveals his name and he says, Yahweh. That's the Hebrew for I am that I am. Self-existent. God over all. Yahweh, our Lord. So the reason that we've got two here, it's talking about Yahweh. It's talking about who he is as self-existent, but it's also talking our Adonai, our, our Lord over us. See, this continues into what Genesis 3 talks about, which is that we do need this reestablishment of connection with God because there's something that has broken it. What it is to be human is not just to be these sort of lords of the universe. No, we're not. In fact, our sin against God, our pride and our breaking ourselves away from God has severed that relationship so that we have, uh, maybe, an, uh, an adversarial relationship with God. Maybe we're not his friends. Maybe we're his enemies. You should not just jump over the fact that these begin and end the psalm by talking about how God has reestablished connection with us. He's not just Yahweh the self-existent. He's also our Lord. He's also reestablished this connection. And how do we know that? What do we see that in the psalm? It says in verse 2, 
Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Here, he's hinting at things like the fact that we would have enemies, that there would be those that work against us, that being united again with him, there's still creation that is separated from him. And the way that we're going to get even further into it is because of the fact that Jesus quotes this psalm. As you read through the New Testament, you shouldn't just jump over every now and again when it kind of brings things in and sort of tabs over a little bit. There are usually references to other places in the Old Testament. You can look up those resources. You can find those places in the Old Testament that Jesus is quoting from. And in Matthew chapter 21, right after Jesus cleanses out the temple, it's one of the times when Jesus shows himself to be angry. He comes in and instead of finding the temple a place of prayer and worship, he finds it a marketplace. It's not a marketplace in the inner, inner, inner pieces of it. The, the Jews still use that for themselves. But the outer courts, the places where others would come to see who God was, they were kicked out. And instead, they had all these stalls and all these money changers that would convert your money from wherever you were from into temple money with, you know, a little bit of a something on the edge for them. And they would sell you sacrifices that you could use with a little bit of something for them, making all kinds of money making it a place where you couldn't pray, but instead where there's just this commerce. Jesus comes in, he gets mad, he makes a whip out of cords, and he starts flipping tables. He clears the place out. And after the place is clear, it says in Matthew 21, that he then, in the temple, has all of these blind, lame people coming to him, and he's healing them there in the temple that he just cleaned out. Then the children begin to sing. They sing about Hosanna to David. And the Pharisees come in, and they're upset, obviously, that he's just flipped over all the tables, even though, you know, maybe there's a little twinge in their conscience about it, so they don't go after him for that. They go after him because the children are singing to him in this way. And then Jesus quotes Psalm 8, 2, and says, Out of the mouths of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. Why does he say that? He's showing us. He's showing us exactly what he's come to do. It's not just about flipping tables on one day. After he dies, the temple goes away anyway. It's not just about healing a couple of blind and lame people. Those people will die eventually anyway. Their blindness and lameness will be healed for however long their lives are, another 20 years, another 30 years, and then they go to the grave where they are absolutely blind and lame. What's the point of this healing? What's the point of this cleansing? Yeah, it's good, and it's a picture. It's a picture. It really happened, and he did it on purpose to preach a message that he has come to save, that he's come to make a way again for this place that is supposed to be the connection between man and God to be fully realized as what it is. It was only ever a picture of him. It was only ever a place where those that are far from God were able to come to God and be his again. That's why he cleans out the temple. It's why he heals the people. And it's why the children sing. Do you know that Jesus? That's what he's come to preach. That's what he's come to proclaim. That's how Psalm 8 actually comes together and talks about not just the Israelites or not just King David. It actually talks about you. Because you can have that same relationship with God through that same Christ. You can have that same cleansing. You can have that same healing. You can be forgiven and adopted again into God's family. Not by your own righteousness, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Because of this temple work. 
because of these table flips. They and the temple are all pointing to what would happen when Jesus dies on the cross, taking your sin and mine and paying for it. When he does that, he makes a way for you and I to be reconnected, to be reestablished with the Lord. See, that's not the only place where Psalm 8 is quoted in the New Testament. It's actually quoted a lot because Jesus is seen as what we should have been. When God puts Adam and Eve in the garden and he gives them dominion over all things, and then they fall, they, they break his law and are separated from God, he slowly starts bringing things back together through the people of Israel, through this temple, and then most clearly in the Son, in Christ. So the New Testament writers, they paint this picture and they show you really clearly. Hebrews chapter 2, it says, It has been testified somewhere, which I hope is like, I don't know, is, is that a joke? Is the writer of Hebrews just so good that he's able to write Hebrews without any references, but so bad that he doesn't remember that it's Psalm? I don't know. Anyway, he says, it's been testified somewhere, and he pulls from Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside of his control. At present, we don't yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Did you follow that? Editing, you know, again, forgive me, camp. But did you follow that? It's saying that because of what Jesus has done, that we go through this same movement with him, that he came from heaven itself to become this son of man, to then go low, to then die. And yet, being raised, those who follow him, those who trust in him, are raised with him. It's saying that he puts all things under our feet by way of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It's sown in weakness. It's raised in power. Earlier in that chapter, he's quoting from Psalm 8. By the way of sanctification, this slow movement in degrees of glory, this slow change that takes place as God moves us, even now in this life, from what we were to what we will be. Colossians 3, don't lie to one another, seeing that you've put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This image that we were made to be in the original setting is now being reclaimed degree by degree through God in Christ. Just don't have time to go through all this, but by also by way of glorification. See, the resurrection took place when Christ rose from the grave and the tomb was empty. Sanctification takes place when you have put all of your faith and trust in Christ. He adopts you. He accepts you fully. And then because he's a good God, he begins to work with you. But glorification is the completion of that process. The point when you die and go to be with the Lord forever. It says in 1 John 3, 2, Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. He goes on to say in verse 3, Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. I'm going to quickly end by telling you, 
that Christ is the one who will bring about all the glory that's promised in Psalm 8. You can read it, you can love it, you can have it blow your mind with God's love, but you are separated from God. He is not your Lord until he becomes your Lord. And that only takes place through Christ. You need someone to come and to save you. Our prayer at Hope Church is that we make that clear every week so that those who are far from God or investigating are able to understand how to become Christians, but also so that those who are Christians can understand again the grace of God to love you so thoroughly, so deeply, so fully to bring you to himself, even through such an excruciating process for himself. If this is true, then everything changes. If this is true, you know who you are. You know that you're loved and accepted by that Lord. You know that that is is at your core. That is the unmovable foundation of love that you can build the identity of the house of your identity on. That this, if you really understood it, would give you this unending comfort and hope, meaning and duty, humility and and grace in your relationships. Man, you you would then be able to see and to sing and to serve. All of it comes back. Do you know him? Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, Psalm 8 is beautiful and complicated. Psalm 8 shows us something of this beautiful and complicated world that you've made and creation that, that you've made us part of and then gave us dominion over that we then rejected by rejecting you. And yet, Lord have reclaimed through Christ. I pray that you would give us the grace to just ponder these things, to just think on these things, not to be overawed by numbers, not to be deceived by the just constant and everywhere argument that we're just things, that we're just people, that we're just appetites like animals that can just go around and and fulfill those appetites, but instead, Lord, to see that we're something more, to argue with what is false with what is true. And instead, Lord, claim you as our Lord. We love you, sir. Pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.